Welcome to the About Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Skirtu. I'm a licensed marriage therapist in the state of Missouri and an ASEC certified sex therapist. You can find me at www.therapistinstlouis.com. Today, I am interviewing Shirley Mellis. Is it Mellis? Is that how I should pronounce yeah. it? Awesome. Yeah, it is. <laughs> she is the author of Banged Up Heart, Dancing with Love and Loss. And actually, Shirley, it's your second time showing up on my show, correct? Correct. Yes. I was on just shortly after my book came out. Yeah. And now I'm on shortly after the audio book came out. <laughs> That's exciting. Well, so tell me, tell everybody a little bit about the book. Well... Uh, in a nutshell, I was I was widowed for a couple of years and then swept into a whirlwind courtship by a younger man, Ooh. a rocket scientist. And soon we were traveling, living our dreams, photography for him, writing for me. But little more than a year later, tragedy stopped us in our tracks. Oh, so my my book is um, it's about courage and resilience. And I would say it's about accepting that life isn't just what happens to us, but more importantly, how we deal with it. Well, so what were some of the challenges then? Like, it sounds like, first of all, you're dating a rocket science. Who can say that? <laughs> but then also, uh, so it sounds like you were you were together for a year and you got that great romantic period. But then what happened that kind of stopped you guys in your tracks? Well, the what stopped us he had told me when we first met he mm-hmm. he told me he'd been diagnosed with a rare blood cancer when he was 40 and so and this is some years after that and he was so positive about his health that i didn't focus on it mm-hmm. and i was more interested in character you know and but he, and he about his health said there were he was treated with a a non chemo um, in, infusion every nine or ten or twelve months, and then he said there were backup treatments in the wings, and uh, he felt a positive attitude was important. And so then I just went into the character issues, and mm-hmm. and they all came, and it was just so. Um, what happened? I mean, the cancer showed up, and uh, as a uh, a bump on his forehead. We were, we had just, we'd been to Africa, we'd been to Brittany, France, and we were on a road trip up to Puget Sound from, from Santa Fe and visiting, we were visiting our childhood haunts and sort of introducing each other to various relatives and friends. Um, Cause I grew up in Northern California. So we were making that trek and he'd grown up in Wyoming. And so everything sort of converged and then, um, uh, just discovered. I I discovered. And one morning, I was just sort. Of, we, we were in bed, and I was caressing his face, and I said, "Oh my God!" I said, "There's a lump the size of a quail egg on your forehead under oh, wow. your shock of hair." And and he said, "Well, you know, I." He says, "I think I remember hitting my head when I was after changing the, all the computer cords in the in the condo." You know. Oh, okay. Which, Sounded plausible to me. Even it wasn't black and blue. It was just just a lump covered by skin, flesh, and um, it turned out to be that the cancer was really active. And um, and then we were in a whole um, a whole sort of 
saving, trying to save, trying to save his life. Um, what was it like going area. through that? Like going through cancer with somebody you really loved? Because I know well, that's a hard thing I, for a lot of people. I was, um, well, so, well, it took a while for the diagnosis to be made. I mean, he was, he was getting the infusion to, um, you know, keep his cancer at bay when, uh, the doctor had, when he had the lump. I mean, the lump was there and he went in to have the infusion and I said, are you going to tell the doctor about the bump on your forehead? He says, oh yeah, by the way, I have this bump on my forehead. <laughs> he was yeah. doing it as a side story. It's like, oh yeah, this is happening too. <laughs> right. So, so the doctor says, well, you better have it x-rayed. He says, I you know, can't tell by looking what, what, it, what that is. So he just had a regular x-ray and then he goes back for another um, infusion of, of this something's called rituxan. It's non-chemo, but sort of similar. And um, and the doctor was on vacation, but his assistant said, well, you know, you, you, the doctor wants it, you to have a, a CAT scan because he can't tell anything from the x-ray. So... So we did that, and that's when I became sort of started to become a little concerned, and um, and that was the the telling report. So mm. the the diagnosis was made, and that really knocked me for a loop. Um, but then we started the process of trying to to stop it, and um, I thought, well. You know, my father had cancer. He had, and it had gone in, gone into remission. And I thought, well, why can't that happen for John? You know, yeah. Because I was sort of oblivious to the fact that he'd been saving this off for eighteen years. And um, well, at that point, I guess maybe it was sixteen. Yeah, I see. So you kind of had not talked a lot about this. I mean, you knew so, that he had this issue, but you didn't really yeah, go in yeah. depth. You're right. You're right. And uh, I didn't. I didn't really know how how severe it could be or was. And I, you know, at some point, I remember talking with his brother. Um, his brother says, "Oh God, you know, John has a medical file two inches thick." I said, "Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> I should have known that." You know, well, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, so he had he had been susceptible to some uh like salmonella and and uh other uh infections and uh but they, they, those actually had, had occurred maybe 7 years earlier so hmm. i thought you know it's it's going to be okay so yeah, i, I was in, i was in denial i was in denial a lot i i just kept hoping and maybe mm-hmm. um I think he was more realistic, but I think he was also hopeful. Well, I and think it, he wanted to make you happy too, right? I mean, you don't know. It's it's hard to deal with your medical issues. So I'm, my guess is he didn't want to, I know this is going to sound weird, but bring down the mood of the relationship. I, 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 I <laughs> is that the right way to say that? I don't know. <laughs> he, and, and I and I was I was a perfect uh receptor of that because I didn't want to bring it down either and and mm-hmm. we just kept uh, kept going until uh, I mean he had surgery he had radiation and it was just and then at some point um, 
he said no to the chemo. And uh, he said, look, he said, I know, I know what can happen with chemo and I, the side effects, and I'm not going to do it. And he said this to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, I want you to think about it over the weekend because this is a new, this is something, a, a new thing, and he wanted a new chemo, and he wanted to try it. He said it was iffy, but he really wanted to. And I should say the doctor did uh, mention the side effects, which you susceptible. I mean, your immune system is down. You're susceptible to infection. And he had had, he'd been hospitalized, it turned out, with infection. When I thought it was a cancer, it was an infection. And um, so, in any case, he said, no, he said, I want to have the best time that Shirley and I can have together. And he says, if I do that chemo, it, it won't be the best last time. So he didn't. Do you ever think and, back about that decision? Like, would you? And I'm not meaning to start I'm, regret I'm, or anything, but like, no, not with. Re- I'm I'm grateful that okay. he did. I'm grateful because I had seen him. Uh, I had he'd been when I thought it was a can when he was practically immobilized. It turned out it wasn't the cancer that I had imagined. It was an infection, and I just thought if and he near and he nearly died that time in the hospital. Um, so I, I just visualizing him being rehospitalized with another infection just didn't compute. So I thought okay. it's good. I wonder, yeah. you know, what other people, so like there's people who've maybe have said things one way or another, you know, your book's been out for a while and I know the audiobook came out. I'm curious if you get any, uh, flack or criticism from those people who are like, no, you need to work as hard as you can. You need to do every single medical treatment. Or have you gotten the opposite from listeners no, and readers? People haven't, ha- people haven't commented on that aspect, uh, really. Uh, I, I have a, a classmate, a, a college classmate whose husband died about the age of John and he had brain cancer. He had cancer and he had surgery after surgery. And um, at the time, I just, you know, at the memorial service, I just felt what, what, how, what an ordeal. I mean, yeah. just, and I think, I think some medical establishments do, one, you know, the doctors are trained to take the Hippocratic oath. They want to, they want to keep you alive, mm-hmm. and the quality of life, in order to keep you alive, is sometimes very iffy. And uh, I, I feel really strongly that the quality of life is important. And even, you know, we knew that John was going to die, but we did have good, good moments in the last months. Well, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. You want, I mean, if you think about just spending the rest of your life in the hospital, say you only have a few months, it's like, do you want most of that time to be in a hospital bed where you're barely able to move or do anything? Or do you want to be living out in the world and being with the people you love and care about? And I think it's a hard decision for everybody to make, you know, when they get to that space. Yeah. And it, it, it is a decision. It It is. Well, sometimes there is no, there's no time to make, have a decision. Yeah, that's but true. In this case in this case he did and I I I'm really grateful that he that he said no to 
to the treatment. And what was sort of surprising to me is that because we'd been, I'd been accustomed to seeing the oncologist with John. And once John said no, that was the end. I mean, it's like... <laughs> we broke up with our oncologist. Yeah, we broke up. <laughs> yeah, we broke up with him. It just wasn't with working a, out. <laughs> yeah, isn't that something? It's just... And that's just the way it is. Oh, my God. And suddenly we were dating the hospice people. The hospice team. <laughs> now, that's an and, interesting romantic book. <laughs> oh, God. I, actually, it was, they, had, they did have a whole team, and, and the nurse and social worker were the ones who, who we, we saw. We saw them regularly and it, until John said, I don't want... I don't want to see them every week. He called and he said, please, I don't want to see you every week <laughs> much as I like you. And she said, she said, could you please make it every two weeks? She says, well, she was really reluctant. This is the nurse. <laughs> and she says, well, um, as, as long as you call me, mm-hmm. if you call me, then okay, I won't come over. <laughs> I, I was really surprised she agreed because, but anyway, she did and, and uh, it, it, it was fine. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are about end-of-life issues. You know, I think what your book is doing is it's really putting together a couple themes. One is love and romance, but another one is end-of-life and how does a couple really work through that as a team? And I, I, what I'm seeing in my own life, you know, I'm getting into middle age more and, and I, I'm considering so my father for example I asked him I said hey dad do you have any sort of end of life plan or like graves and he's like oh yeah our family has graves we have 11 somewhere and it was I was like uh where 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 are they and he's like oh you just got to call them and I was like who who do I have to call dad (laughs) and I realized like he has no plan and a lot of people don't like to your point earlier you were saying sometimes this stuff just happens to you and you kind of have to make these decisions what do you think makes it so hard for people to face end of life choices like this oh i, I think we're, we're so afraid of dying yeah. um and that's sort of admitting that the inevitable is going to really happen no i'm going to live forever uh, that's not true yeah, surely <laughs> yeah exactly you, you mentioned your dad and mm-hmm. my father my father was very specific uh, years before. He said, you know, there's a family plot. I think it was, I think it was after he retired, but he says, we have a family plot in this little place in Oregon. And he said, and when the time comes, I, I, my parents wanted to, they were going to be cremated. They decided that. And I was with them when they went to the attorney and, and did this stuff. And, um, you know, at that point, they were, as far as I knew, healthy and certainly had their wits about them, and I witnessed this. And But then he got more specific after that. He said, okay, so he said, here, here are the plot numbers, and mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, and after my mother died four years before he did, and, and then we saved her ashes until my father died so that they could be they would be buried at the same time. But he says, I want mine to be, if it's in the family plot, uh, between my mother, my, my grandmother, want my ashes to be between my gra- your, your grandmother and, and your mother. He says, because they didn't get along, and I just will keep the peace. <laughs> I love that. Well, I'm, you know what? He was planning ahead. There was going to be a lifetime under there, so they needed to have a good situation. 
Yeah, that was sort of took me by surprise. Oh, heck, at oh, least he had a plan. Yes, yes. And, you know, as far as, as in, in, with, um, in my, my first husband died suddenly after su- surgery to replace his aortic valve. But, I mean, he survived the surgery, but 17 days later, he, he died mm-hmm. in a rehab center. He's supposed to be getting stronger to come home, and I, he, had a heart attack. So, uh, but I, again, and, uh, he didn't care about, he said, I don't think, it, he was a lot older than, and and he said, said at one point, he says, it, when I die, he says, I don't think you should have a memorial service. He said, I would hate for there not to be a crowd. He says, most <laughs> of the people I know have died, you know? <laughs> but, uh, well, but to, to the original question, it sounds like if it's, it, for people who are kind of planning to live until maybe their 60s, 70s, 80s, and they're like, okay, but that's, I've lived my life, I'm going to die, then maybe there's a plan there. But when things kind of happen all of a sudden, like in actually both cases for you, right, those first two relationships, they kind of died suddenly, unexpectedly. I mean, not fully unexpectedly with your second husband. Or- yeah, not fully unexpectedly. And with John, it was, um, yeah. we we had some time. And I had been, I had been trained to, I mean, I was in, PR for a lot of years, and my first husband was in that public affairs area too. And I said, you know, John, when I said, you know, I'm going to write, I'm going to write the uh, obit. I'm going to. This is just part of my training, my life. <laughs> and, and so I wrote it, and I had him edit it. You know, <laughs> I said, there's some things I don't know. You know, so he said, I said, so where do you think I should send this? And he said, you know, he says, I don't think. I think most places will not be interested. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, the papers in Laramie and the papers in California, Southern California where he was did his rocket science stuff. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I think there are few might. So, it, <laughs> so he, he went along with that. And, um, and then it's, at some point uh, he actually said, you know, he said, I think maybe you should have two more memorial services, one in Santa Fe and one in one in um, Reston, Virginia, where we lived most mm-hmm. of the time, and one in Santa Fe, where he had lived before um, meeting me. And um, so I, so I, I did do that. And he said that at one point he thought he wanted his ashes scattered in uh, the Snowy Range, which is a range of mountains where his parents ash. He and his brothers scattered their parents' ashes there. And I had been there. I visited there. And he said, no, no. He says, uh, I don't want that now. He says, I just scatter my ashes in the mountains near Santa Fe. So I had to sort of figure out where that might be because we'd never visited the mountains near Santa Fe. Together. <laughs> but it's, it sounds sweet that you were really willing to honor his wishes. I, I am also curious, how what was it like writing the book? Because it is kind of hard. I mean, you're doing a memoir here, so you're I'm essentially putting your story out there. What was that like for you? Well, it was, um, I, uh, I, w- I felt compelled to write it. Um, and I, at first I was just going to celebrate our relationship because, I mean, we, we were married officially two years and one week, and it was so short. I mean, it was like, so John died during the honeymoon period. Mm-hmm. So... So I was going to celebrate our relationship, and I, I just I had I had a journal, I had um, 
lots of emails that I had sent to people during the process, the whole last nine months. And so I relived a lot of the, uh, the, the pain, but, but also the joy. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, um, it, 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 it was, it was more compelling in in that way i i just kept going and it was it was joyful and and tearful all at the same time it sounds like it was but, kind of a therapeutic uh, journey for you it was i mean i you know i i can't say it saved my life but it kept <laughs> me moving it kept me moving mm-hmm. and um and then you know afterwards um i I have a goddaughter who is an author for books, books for middle school age children. And she read the first 60 pages and she's, oh, Shirley, you've got to keep writing. This will be interesting for other people. And she said, you've got to write about Joe, my first husband, whom she knew and was crazy about. And so I, I did that. I wrote about Joe and I wrote about my Greek lover, my troubled mother, and I had this voluminous manuscript. And so, but I knew something was missing. And um, when I met the editor who said, well, she accepted it. She, I said, I know something's missing. And two weeks later, she called and she says, I know exactly what's missing. So oh. we met again. And she said, for starters, she said, you have three books or four books in one. <laughs> 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 she, said, she said, I've made a note of how many pages in each. And I think you should go with where your energy is. So that was okay. the relationship with with my second husband, but then I layered it. And what I found is that uh, there was a lot of drama in that two and a half year time period, but I had just written the visible story. I hadn't written about my feelings, my deep Mm. feelings, and I hadn't reflected on those feelings from where I am now. So that was the rewrite, uh, which really enriched the enriched my story and i had to put myself back into the zone of the moments to mm-hmm. to really acknowledge the feelings that i had and then i had to step back and say well now this is <laughs> this is what i think about that <laughs> yeah cuz i imagine you write it you kind of express it but then it's like you're reliving it again, even that third time, but like at a deeper level, like you're really kind of putting it, I guess honoring it is the word I would want to use. It's like, oh, that's, that's what happened that's, to me. <laughs> that's good, because I didn't know what had happened. And writing has often helped me see more clearly. And, uh, you know, I, I was wondering, I, I sort of started out celebrating the relationship and then I got to be a little more... Uh, curious about things and wondering whether John had intentionally kept the severity of his illness a secret from me, and mm. uh, and yet he had acknowledged he had told me about it when I first met him. So, um, any case, it was it was um, an exploration that uh, brought me sort of a, a more nuanced understanding of him. And his behavior toward me, and and, and some insights about myself too. Well, which, you know what it makes me kind of think about is just uh, how men handle illness in general. Um, I don't think they give themselves a lot of freedom to be weak, and so what 
what demonstrates weakness more than illness and your body kind of falling apart. I don't know, you know, these are just my ramblings, but I, I sometimes wonder if it's just shame around being sick or ill that kind of makes men hold back and not share some of that stuff because they want to kind of be stoic and strong. Um, well, I think, I think in John's case, he, that was his way of surviving it because it was, it was such a blow, I think, when he was diagnosed. I mean, he was, he was working full bore when he said suddenly he couldn't go across a tennis court. Uh, he just couldn't run across a tennis court. And he had uh, something called an executive physical that he could get. And he got it. And, uh, and it, was, it was blood work. I guess it was blood work. But finally someone diagnosed his uh, cancer. It's called macro... Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, and there are maybe 1,500 cases of it a year, and it's just uh, a very uh, minor uh, in terms of numbers. But in any case, it, it with a big impact. But he he really felt, I think, in order for him to keep going, he he had he did a lot, and he always had plans, and he he said, you know. It's important to have plans. He says, life interferes, but mm-hmm. it's important to have plans. And he didn't look back with regret. If some things he did didn't turn out, I mean, he he had got, he had been in Brittany on, on business, and then he, 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 they had these crepes, these great crepes <laughs> with cheese, not dessert crepes, but crepes you fill with cheese and ham and all this, and they're sort mm. of old very good, and they're very good with this alcoholic cider. <laughs> I'm really hungry now. Why are you doing that to me, Shirley? <laughs> <laughs> right, it's almost lunchtime, isn't it? Well, in any case, so he decided he wanted to try to import this cider and sell this alcoholic cider in L.A. So he got all these licenses, and he was, and he went back to Brittany, and his friends there took him to these various cider places, just small businesses, but ones where they would send it, would send cider, and and the uh, the day that everything was uh, to arrive in L.A. the the dock, wherever, um, John was flat out, um, and they had thought he had a stroke. But it was uh, meningitis, spinal meningitis, oh, and wow. uh, any case, that was the end of the cider business. And <laughs> he didn't go back. He didn't. The, 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 everything just stayed on. The, he didn't try to revive it, and he didn't express any. Re- I mean, I didn't know him then. But when he talked about it, it he says, "Look, it was over." He says, "I had to do other things." So. <laughs> So it was a way of, I think, um, for him surviving um, a, a devast- sort of a devastating diagnosis, but it kept him going to just not uh, concentrate on it. I mean, he was aware of it, and he knew when he had to have treatments. He kept a little log of this protein in his system, this IgM, and when it got up to a certain point, that meant, and, and it had to do with, I'm sure, his feeling, too, mm-hmm. uh, sweats or whatever. Uh, then he would go go in for the for the treatment and then start that cycle. So he was not 
unaware of that cycle, but he certainly um, had, you know, kept going on on new projects. And he didn't let people talk about it, and he really had a way of not of cutting you cutting you off. I mean, he didn't want any pity expressed or anything. It was uh, interesting. He wanted to keep moving. Yeah. I'm curious. So, Shirley, you said um, you sent me a list of some questions, and one of the things I was kind of that was popping out for me is that Banged Up Heart has won some awards. I'm curious what awards has it won, and what does it mean to oh. you? Well, it had the um, the first award it won was from the New Mexico Book Association, and that was for the cover design, which which interesting. Which is <laughs> funny. I didn't know there was any such competition for that kind of thing. But uh, You're like, the, I surely I did, didn't submit this. <laughs> you know, I did like the cover, and it was something that uh, that. It was a group, a couple of friends, and, and my husband Frank and I over dinner, or before dinner one night, I sort of had this idea of how I wanted it to look, but I couldn't make it look beautiful. <laughs> and, and they added something, and, and each person sort of added something, and then I presented it to the publisher, and uh, their graphic art, the graphic artist made it really, made it look great. So, so that was an award. Wow! <laughs> and the other awards were for content. There was a uh, an Arizona, New Mexico uh, group award, and uh, New Mexico Press Women Award, and then uh, the Federation of National Federation of Press Women. Uh, awarded first prize to the video trailer that actually my publicist had put together she interviewed me and did this wonderful uh video trailer of the book for the book just mm-hmm. it's three minutes and um then but the one that really meant i think the most to me was from independent book publishers and this is it was a worldwide competition and I did go to New York to to pick up this medal that weighs it doesn't weigh a ton, but it's <laughs> it's, it's a it's a weighty medal. On, you had it to was check a, it <laughs> I, on a blue ribbon, and uh, so uh, it was it was very nice. And that was for the content. Actually, you know, in the category they awarded it as an ebook. I think it was uh, it was. Best adult nonfiction personal ebook is what they <laughs> called it. So that's it. So it means um, I think it it means that I made it that it, it was worthwhile. I, that's how it translates to me that I, that it's it's been worth my book is uh worthy of attention by other people i uh which i you know you never know what i never i i was trying to make it meaningful i wanted it to be meaningful to me i mean i was just writing for myself for the longest time and then i think after my goddaughter said you know this could be interesting to other people i thought well you know if if that's the case i'd better go the distance and make it really worthwhile so I just persevered. 
Well, I'm glad you did because you have such a great book and and now it's an audio book too. I'm curious because we're towards the end of the podcast. If there's any just final thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners about either your experience, being a writer, whatever is important to you. Well, you know, the, the, um, the subtitle of my book, I mean, it's Dancing with Love and Loss. And um, I think my message to, to people would be to stay strong and keep dancing. I, <laughs> I, I think it's uh, much of our life has, should be intentional. Life is not just what happens to us. We, we do have choices to make. And I think it's important to recognize that and to make intentional decisions. I mean, some, it's at some point, as you may referred earlier, I was trying to honor John's dreams, unrealized dreams. One of them was a solo exhibition of his photographs and all. And then at the moment that occurred, I realized this was not the dream that he, you know, he died before he could have the exhibition he wanted. And I, I've got, I can't fulfill his dreams and I've got to have my own dreams. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of what I call an aha moment. Um, and, and, and I just kept, that stayed with me. I said, surely, you know, now you are alive and you, ha- you're going to keep going. And, you're going to make your own dreams. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a great. You're going to have them and 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 take steps to to fulfill them. So I think that's a great end note. You're going to have dreams and you need to take steps to fulfill them. Shirley, I want to thank you again for coming on the show again. It's always a pleasure to have you on. You've been listening to www.aboutsexpodcast. If you want to find me, you can also visit me at www.therapistinsaintlouis.com. To all of my listeners, I'm your host, Angela Skirtu. I've been interviewing Shirley Mellis with Banged Up Heart, author of Banged Up Heart, Dancing with Love and Loss. Stay kinky, St. Louis.